In the eighth installment of the Star Wars saga, Kylo Ren has a confrontation with this guy, Snoke. <laughs> Kylo Ren, if you don't know, is the son of Han Solo and Princess Leia. And so there's high aspirations for him, but instead of choosing light, he chooses the dark side and submits himself to uh, the Sith Lord Snoke, the bald dude. The bald dude has a confrontation with Kylo Ren because he just came back from slaughtering people. He thought he had won, but Snoke says this to him. He says, the mighty Kylo Ren, when I found you, I saw what matters, uh, what all masters live to see, raw, untamed power, and beyond that, something truly special, the potential of your bloodline, a new Vader. Now I fear I was mistaken. Snoke undercuts his success and his victory and says, I don't know if you're who I thought you were. To which Kylo Ren replies, I've given everything I have to you, to the dark side. They exchange a few more words. And then Snoke has some choice responses for him. And this is where it gets important for us. He says this, the bald guy. He says, Skywalker lives. The seed of the Jedi Order lives. And as long as it does... Hope lives in the galaxy. I thought you would be the one to snuff it out. Alas, you're no Vader. You're just a child in a mask. And of course, Kylo Ren is unhappy about that, and so he destroys an elevator. <laughs> Makes total sense. But the point, of course, is what Snoke says to him. As long as the Jedi Order lives, hope lives in the galaxy. Look, we are no rebellion, and of course, we are not anything like Star Wars in, in the totality of it. But here's the point. Uh, our mission, our rebellion against the world's order lives because someone else lives. And it's our leader. Our rebel leader is Jesus Christ himself. And just as it's true in the Star Wars galaxy that the Jedi order lives and therefore hope lives, we can say in the Christian reality. In fact, all of that really is the real reality because Jesus lives hope lives. So the real question is not whether or not there is hope, but rather what your hope is placed in. Is there hope in what you are trusting in? Are you trusting in the right thing? Here's, here's how this matters for you. I say this a lot, and so forgive me if it sounds a bit repetitive, but I can't think of a better way to talk about this. Your hope, and sometimes I'll say your faith, your hope is only as good as the object in which it is placed. So if you're hoping in something different, lesser, other than what Jesus Christ offers you, your hope is built on something that ultimately will disappoint you. If your hope is in your academic prowess and God gives you a stroke or God makes it so that you're unable to do the very thing that you desire to do with your intelligence, you're going to be disappointed. If your hope is in your excellent figure, your beauty, your handsomeness, and God takes that away from you, you're going to be sorely disappointed because the very thing that you trusted to be your saving grace is no longer there for you. If your hope is in your ability to be smarter than most people, you're the scholar of scholars. You can outwork people because you're willing to be disciplined. If God were to take away that ability, if God were to strike you at something that makes it impossible for you to do those things, you would be devastated. You see, here's the thing. God made every single person in this room an object 
of hoping desire. It's not a matter of if you will hope in something. It's not a matter of whether or not you're going to place your trust in something. The question is what you're trusting in, where your hope is placed. Take a quick moment and ask you a question. I don't do this often in the sermon, but just work with me here, okay? What are you ultimately hoping in? What is your life about? Think about that. How would you answer that question? What is your life about? What are you hoping in? Young person, how you answer that is going to be so determinative of everything else in your life that it is not to be overstated. I can't overstate the importance of the answer to that question. That's the reason I'm spending some time on this. Look, uh, as long as hope lives, as long as Jesus lives, our hope lives. That's the Christian position. What are you hoping in, young person? Where do you put your ultimate trust? And you say, I don't know, Pastor Rod. I, I honestly, I don't know. I, ho- I, I, I like a lot of things. I, I want to see a lot of things happen, but I don't know where my hope is. Here's how you might be able to guess. If God were to steal that thing from you, steal, not as in like stealing, but as if God were to take it from you, would you begin to despair of life itself? That's the thing. That's getting closer to the thing that you're ultimately putting your hope in. Your friendships is one of your biggest weaknesses. Consequently, also one of your greatest strengths. But if God were to take your friends away from you and plant you in a new place without those same friends and you had no connectivity to them, would you despair of life itself? Maybe for most of you, that wouldn't be the case. Or maybe you despair of life itself because the very thing that you thought would bring fulfillment, you achieved and it has not yet delivered on that thing. Hope in the wrong thing is going to lead to your disillusionment, your despair, depression, anxiety, futility, anger, frustration. All the things that your generation knows very well are there in part because you're hoping in the wrong thing. Your hope is only as good as the object of your hope. So what is it, young person? Are you hoping for a political leader to answer the world's questions for you? Are you hoping for stardom on a platform and hoping that people will follow you and think that you're worthy of their attention and their affection? Are you hoping that you're going to mature into some beautiful goddess or god with a demigod-like figure? Hoping that people will give you, attract, uh, give you attention because of your attractiveness? I mean, there's a million things. A million things. But again, the question I, I pose to you is serious. What are you putting your hope in? Because the object of your hope is really, uh, your, your hope is only as good as the object of your hope. New Testament Christian hope, then. And it really is this simple. It is this simple. The New Testament hope of the Christian is that Jesus, who died and rose again, has promised to come back for us. Whether alive or dead, Jesus is coming back, and we will be with him forever. That is our hope, in a nutshell, that we will be with Jesus. And the people that we know and love, who are friends and family, believers in Christ, we will be reunited with them forever and never to experience sin, shame, guilt, remorse ever again, because it'll be gone Look, that is a lasting hope. It is a better hope and everything else in your life that you are tempted to put your hope in and your trust in is going to sadly disappoint you. It is so important that you get this. Hope that the Christian has is a hope of Christ, the hope of glory, the hope of reunion with him. 
in a glorified state. The hope of this world, everything else is going to fall short and become something of a disappointment to you. It will happen, just a matter of time. New Testament hope. As we go into this, this is going to be a bit of a heavier sermon, and I can't escape it because we have to talk about death and the rapture tonight, and then next week we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, which is going to be a bit of unpacking. This whole sermon series is called The End is Near, and the reason I titled it that is because we were coming here to this next section. This next section in Thessalonians is going to start talking to us about what the rapture is, uh, that is, what happens to Christians who die, what happens to Christians who are alive, and then what we can expect in the future, and then on top of that, what's after the event called the rapture, namely the day of the Lord. This is end time stuff. This is where the Bible gets really exciting because the Bible still has prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled. It's future focused. This is what's going to happen and you need to be ready for that. But of course, all that presupposes that you're a Christian who has his or her hope set on the right thing. Where's your hope? Well, let's see how Christians are to understand this life in terms of the hope that we have. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says this in verse 13. He says, but we do not want you to be uninformed brothers. Okay, I don't want you to be ignorant. I don't want you to be uneducated about this. He says about, about those who are asleep. And of course, sleep is a euphemism for death. The Bible uses that terminology a lot, and we'll talk about that more in a second. He says, I don't want you to be uninformed about those who are asleep. And by the term, the way that he uses brothers, he's talking to Christians. That you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He talks about the hope that the world has. The world looks at people that die and they are, they're hopeless. They're hopeless. But in verse 14, he makes a contrast. We're not like those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. This first section is not specifically saying that we're looking forward to the rapture. And if you're wondering what that word means, I'll explain that soon. The groundwork that Paul seeks to build here is that when people die, you need to understand that death is a reality that doesn't have the same kind of power that it has for those who are in the world, those who are not Christians. For Christians, when death comes to us, it's not a villain that has not been defeated. This is, uh, this is the kind of villain that has been rendered powerless because Jesus has already he conquered death. And because, verse 14, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, he made prophecies about his death and his resurrection, which he fulfilled. Because we know that to be true, even so, because of Jesus, he's going to come back and bring us with him. Point number one, I want you as a Christian, if you are a Christian, not to fear the power of death. That's where we're going with this. Uh, as we think about death, as we unpack this a little bit, I want you to feel the encouragement that Paul gives to Christians. Namely, death is not the same villain that it is for you than it is for everybody else. Death is a villain. Death is a powerful villain. Death is the kind of thing that people of all ages, races, and spaces wish they had control over. I heard about this story. It's actually a documentary called Meeting You. Uh, it's a Korean documentary, and it showcases this company that built a virtual reality uh, environment for this woman to be reunited with her daughter who died at a young age, eight or nine, something like that. And so they collected family photos, they did interviews with the family, and they uh, created this whole environment for her. They built a 3D image of the young girl in order for this mom, who was desperate to overcome the pangs of death and reunite with her daughter so that this mom could see her 
and even in some ways feel her, hear her voice, and respond to her. It is tragic as it is moving, as it is off-putting. And I couldn't help but want to show you a little bit of what that looked like. So please direct your eyes to the screen as I show you this mother being reunited with her deceased daughter. Oh, Oliver. Okay. I, I don't trust that's going to work. Can, can you rewind it from there? Will it work there, guys? Go to the front, the very front of it. Please work. Buffering, buffering. Oh, I see it loading. That's good. Can you click on like three seconds ahead? Would that work? Yeah, look, I see it. I see it loading at the bar down there. Ah, okay. All right. That's about it. you feel a little bit of the emotional element of this. I, I, I didn't want you to look at this poor lady and, and laugh. That wasn't my intention. I do want you to feel a bit of the awkwardness and a bit of the pain that this, this woman feels for her lost daughter. This poor young girl that lost her life for whatever reason, I don't think they, they explained why, but she spent hours. And this video, this, the full documentary, has 20 million views that aired just last year. So clearly, this has struck a chord with people. And you as a young person, you may not feel that just yet. You may not feel like your life is in any way threatened or that there's danger that lurks around your life because of death. Uh, but you, you have to understand, at some point, your life will be confronted with the harsh reality of the cold slap of death. And when it hits you, will you be ready to respond with an understanding that is unshakable? I don't have to fear death. 
I can look forward to the hope that Jesus Christ will resurrect our dead bodies of Christians and reunite us with the people that we love. More than that, with Jesus himself. The New Testament hope is that Jesus, who died and rose again, has promised to come back unexpectedly for his people, both living and dead. Death is a powerful enemy, but it's not one that you need to fear if you are in Christ. I want to make a couple observations about death just because I need you to understand this here. This is important. You don't need to fear death, but you do have to understand death is, in fact, terrible. You may not <clears throat> maybe need an explanation about that, but sometimes, and as a pastor, I get to see some of this, uh, people like to sugarcoat death. We use euphemisms like, oh, they're in a, uh, you know, they're in a better place. They're resting or you know, that he's having the time of his life now and he's doing, and sometimes that's true. If they're Christians, we can have the hope and confidence that they are doing better, things are better for them, but often the stench of death is covered over with the perfume. We try to keep it out of our eyes and out of our ears and out of our sight in order to, uh, to let the pain of that feel a little less terrible. But make no mistake, death is awful. In fact, we should understand that death is a direct consequence of our rebellion, our sin. It's not to say that people who die instantaneously or suddenly are somehow guilty of more sin than anyone else. The point is that as a human race, death entered our species because of death. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. The point of that then is that everyone should expect to die. Young person, hear me and hear the scriptures again. You're going to die, and it's terrible. It's not a good thing. It's a bad thing. Death is terrible. Death is not only terrible, it is also temporary. This is also important. Even though we don't have to fear death, we do have to understand that death is something of a formidable foe, but it's a temporary foe. And it's temporary for everybody, not just Christians. When you put someone in a cemetery, do you know that the word cemetery actually means a sleeping chamber, a sleeping place? From the longest time, from most, uh, most of, our, of our nation's history, there was a time where we believed that death was not permanent. We believe, and we still do as Christians, that death is a temporary stay that will result in every single person in this room being resurrected, Christian and non-Christian. As I told you, sleep is a euphemism. And in fact, if you just think about the, 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 the euphemism, or the analogy rather, it points to the fact that when you're sleeping, you're expecting to wake up again. That's why we put people, and we bury them, we put them in a grave, and we lay them down, and we bury their bodies in dirt because we're expecting them to get back up again. In fact, the whole purpose of burial is to signify that very reality. We bury you, and typically we don't burn you because we have the, the hope that your body laying down here will again someday rise. You're in a sleeping posture because we expect you to get back up again. Jesus said in John 11, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, uh, Paul says it this way, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Again, the whole point of this is death is a temporary reality for all of us. Most of us, I should say. And again, resurrection is going to happen to every single person in this room. That is to say, your body will die at some point, very likely. And after that reality, you will be raised from the dead, every single one of us, some of us to newness of life, and others of us to torment. Death is terrible. Death is temporary because we'll all be resurrected. And again, I want to make the point here, death is also toothless. For the Christian... Death is not something 
uh, that we need to fear because its ping has been removed. In fact, uh, if you think about it like a snake, the fangs have been taken out. Uh, if you see a rattlesnake when you're hiking in, the, in, in OC, you see a rattlesnake, you should probably walk away or at least take the long way around because if that rattlesnake bites you, you're going to be poisoned and you might die. But if I told you, hey, I've cleared out this whole path of rattlesnakes, um, well, I, I, I caught every rattlesnake on this path, guys, and I defanged all of them. Don't call PETA on me. I didn't do that. <laughs> but if I did that and I said, hey, we're going to go on this trail together, but every rattlesnake on the trail, I defanged personally. Confident I caught every single one of them. You don't have to worry. I think if you saw a rattlesnake, even a, a den of them, and you trusted me, you'd be able to walk through that without kind of an issue. Same thing is true with death. For Christians, when we face death, there ought to be a sense of joy and expectation because what we're seeing here is not the final word for Christians. Paul says it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death has been defeated. Death has been canceled, platform removed, defunded. Death is no longer an enemy for the Christian. It is rendered toothless and defenseless. Paul says in Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Death is terrible. Death is temporary. Death is toothless. And that's why Christians don't need to fear it. I keep saying this, and I want to make sure you hear this. That's why Christians don't need to fear it. Young person, if you're a Christian, I could say this to you. As of right now, I know it's a morbid thought, but you need to be ready should the Lord take your life away. Martin Luther, one of the great reformers of our faith, had a 13-year-old daughter named Magdalena. As she lay on her deathbed, next to her, her father says, Sweetheart, would you prefer to stay alive or would you prefer to go to, to see your heavenly father? She replies to him, Darling father, as the Lord wills. In that moment, Martin Luther knew that her time was short. And so he said, he said to her, Darling Lena, you will rise and shine like a star. Yea, uh, yea, like the sun. I am happy in spirit, but the flesh is sorrowful and will not be content. The parting grieves me beyond measure. Luther understood, as you should understand, that death is a real enemy rendered defenseless, but still an enemy. His 13-year-old daughter, Lena, died for whatever cause it is, but you need to be ready, okay? Uh, I, I know I say this a lot in my sermons, but be ready, be ready. Settle accounts tonight. Young person, be ready to visit your maker. Be ready to have your life suddenly detoured. Of course, there are countless examples in our county of people that have lost their life suddenly for one reason or another. Don't assume that God owes you another breath. Young person who's not a Christian, please hear me. I care about you. Your leaders care about you. You're here by God's providence. Uh, and you're here at a sermon where we're talking about death and it's a bit morbid, sure, but more than anything, what this should do is inspire you to understand, to check your heart and understand that what Christian life is all about is being reconciled with God our Father. Because of your sin, you are separated. But because of his goodness, there is a way to be right with him once more. And that way is Jesus Christ, to trust him, to turn to him, to live for him. I would pray and beg you that tonight you make that, you make that decision so that you, like every other Christian, don't need to fear death. This next part of Paul's argument 
builds on the first part. He, he starts by saying, look, I need you to understand that everyone who dies as a Christian, it's not gone for them. It's not over. In fact, uh, even though Christians have died, and many Christians have died to this point, 2021, he says, even though they're gone, that they're not gone permanently. In fact, take a look. He says, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. This is something God, uh, Jesus Christ, revealed to Paul. He said that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, we will not precede those who have fallen asleep. We will not precede dead Christians. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with, uh, and with the, trump, the sound of a trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ, those who have died as Christians, they're going to rise first. This is the resurrection I told you about, at least the first resurrection. He says, Then we who are alive, these are Christians who, who are still in the flesh when Jesus comes back, we who are left will be caught up. There's where we get the word rapture from, raptidzo. We'll be caught up um, together with them, harpazo rather, uh, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul points to this future event on the, on, the, on the end times timeline. He says, look, there is a time when Jesus will come back for believers, dead and alive. And those who are dead, they're going to start first. They're going to be the first wave that head up to meet the Lord in the air. Then we who are alive, if it's us in this room, we will, meet him, we will follow behind the dead believers and meet the Lord in the air. He will take us with him to be with him in heaven, wherever that is, and we will be with him forever. That's step one. That event can happen at any moment. The rapture. It could happen in the next 30 seconds. Jesus could descend, and we can hear the, the cry of the archangel, the sound of the trumpet, dead believers rising up. We follow behind them. We meet Jesus in the air, and we go to heaven with him. Point number two, expect the rapture at any moment. He starts with death because it's important that he lay the groundwork. He doesn't want them to be discouraged. He wants them to be encouraged that the future that awaits dead and, and dead and living Christians is an exciting one. It's rapture. And when I say rapture, I don't mean like happy feelings, like, oh, I was raptured by her singing. I mean raptured uh, like, a, like capturing, boom. Uh, harpazo is the word. And it might sound like the word harpoon. Similar concept. You snatch something away. Rapture, that's what it means. And again, this can happen at any moment. One of the things that Tiga Tactics taught us, now I think guys and girls got both of this, uh, we, they, they taught us about situational awareness, right? You, you should always be aware of your surroundings. You know, if you're walking in a dark alley, you should look behind you, ladies. Uh, I think he told the guys the same thing, like don't, don't assume that you're safe. Always have a sense of where the exits are and, you know, what weapons do you have on your person. And so I just got to thinking about how cool situational awareness is, and I thought, oh, it's kind of like this right here. It says current slide. I come in here, and the first thing I'm doing is I'm catching the sight lines and looking for an exit. I see the exit sign too, I'm not worried. I mean, you were shot. People do all kinds of weird and amazing stuff when they're scared. I can tell you the license plate numbers of all six cars outside. I can tell you that our waitress is left-handed and the guy sitting up at the counter weighs 215 pounds and knows how to handle himself. I know the best place to look for a gun is the cab of the gray truck outside. And at this altitude, I can run flat out for a half mile before my hands start shaking. 
And why would I know that? Because he took Tiga tactics and learned about situational awareness. So it got me thinking, okay, if you got to be situationally aware for your physical protection, what would it look like to apply that to our spiritual sensibilities? So I invented something new. I'm going to create a new Tiga tactics, and we're going to call it spirituational awareness. You need to have spirituational awareness in order to be ready for these any moment, uh, the any moment expectation that the rapture could happen. Spirituational awareness. Yes, I made that up. You're welcome. Okay, so here's where we get this in the Bible. We're taught that the rapture is imminent. Uh, it could happen at any moment. And here's a couple places that we see that. The first place is in 1 Corinthians 15, 51, and 52. Here's what he says. Uh, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. And just a quick moment here. Mystery doesn't mean like, huh, I wonder how that happened. Mystery in the Bible is something that was previously unknown, but is now disclosed to us in the New Testament. So he says, I tell you a mystery. I didn't know this before, but now I do. We shall not all sleep. Now remember, what does sleep refer to? Death. Not everybody's going to die, he says. But we shall all be changed. Dead and alive Christians. In a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. There's the trumpet again. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. He's talking about all of us. And so even though this is a fuzzy picture of the rapture, you're seeing it here. We're going to be changed. The dead are going to be raised. We're all going to be changed together. And he points to that imminent time. The trumpet's going to sound, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and we shall all be changed. He's pointing to that time. Or see, Here's the, here's the, the cool thing. Um, Christians don't have to wait for some far-off time to be glorified. We would get a new body, a glorified body, at the same time that these dead believers rise up. The rapture comes, it's imminent, it could happen at any moment, twinkling of an eye kind of situation here. The other text we would look at is in John 14. It says this, In my Father's house are many rooms, Jesus says. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Jesus doesn't use the word rapture here. He doesn't say, I'm going to harpazo you. Uh, He does say, rather, that there is a coming time when I'm going to come back for you, and he doesn't give any indication as to surrounding events. It seems like he's painting a picture of, look, there's going to be a time when I'm coming back. You don't know when. Be ready. So uh, really what we're getting from this then is that the rapture is imminent. We could expect it at any moment. Um, and that's my first point, the subpoint. Those are the two passages that you have. You're going to talk a little bit about this tonight. But the rapture at any moment is different than the, than the, the second coming. We're going to talk more about this next week. The second coming of Christ uh, and the period of tribulation that, ushers in, that, that the rapture ushers in is different than what we're talking about this evening. There's a couple reasons why uh, the rapture is not believed to be the second coming. And I'm going to give you three of them, although there are more. Okay, you ready for this? Here are three reasons why the rapture is not the second coming. First, there are different signs given for each event. The rapture is a moment's notice, trumpet sound, things happen, Christians are gone. Whereas if you look at uh, sections like Matthew 24, you see that there are a lot of different signs for the second coming of Christ. The moon turns into blood, there's violence, there's earthquakes, rumors of wars, all those kind of things that point to the second coming of Christ, where the rapture is not given any kind of sign to prepare for. Second, there's different places that Christ meets believers. In the rapture, we meet Christ in the air, okay? But in the second coming, Christ actually comes to the Mount of Olives. 
His feet touch the ground, and there's activity happening. He declares war. He, he destroys unrighteousness. So there's a, uh, different signs that are given. There's a different place where Christ meets us. And thirdly, there are different people involved. First Thessalonians 4, Christians are the ones who are taken. And in Revelation 19, the people that are judged and that are snatched away are unbelievers. So those are just three reasons. There's more that we can offer here. But just to give you a sense of where this is placed in the end times chronology, here's what you're looking at. I know it's a tough graphic. That was the best one I could find. Okay. What we're describing here is called pre-tribulational premillennialism. Don't worry about the language. Just understand that right now, we're presently in that block called the church age. We are, in 2021, still living in the age of the church that Jesus inaugurated in Acts chapter 2. The next event on the timeline is what you see there, the resurrection of believers being caught up with Christ for seven years. Living and dead Christians are caught up with Christ for seven years. And then we come back. What happens when we come back? Well, that'll be part of next week. But this is just to give you an orientation of what this looks like. Again, this for the Christian, as we understand our scripture, this can be an any moment kind of thing here. We're not waiting on anything. This can happen now. And then we go to be with Christ. This is the Christian hope. Jesus is the one who will redeem us. He died. He rose again. He's coming back for us. This is the Christian hope. Paul says, rapture, I think, is not the second coming. And as a result, uh, the rapture is motivating. It should be something that spurs us on. Studying Mormonism again and in preparation for STM Utah. And I'm reminded about one of the major draws of Mormonism. Uh, Mormonism promises something that's incredibly sweet and appealing. It promises that if you become a Mormon, one of the things that they offer is what they call eternal families. If you and your family becomes Mormon, you'll be together forever and ever and ever, never to be, uh, never to be disunited, which is mostly true. Not fully, because if you're exalted as a Mormon, you become a god of your own planet. You and your wife... Uh, you and your wife, your goddess wife, have spirit babies and you populate your own planet in a different universe. And so it's kind of true, but it's not. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fully make sense. Mormonism offers a, a bill of goods and says, hey, you can have your family for the rest of your eternal life. Wouldn't that be amazing? But not really. If you're a good Mormon, you become a god of your own planet. At least that's what they teach. Christianity offers something that is tangibly available. If you're a Christian and your family's Christians, you genuinely will have an eternity with people that you know and love and care about. And not just your family. Everyone in this room who is a Christian, we are united by the bonds of Christ that can never be broken. We're more than family. We're spiritual family. Paul says that this is motivating for us. He says in verse 17, or 18 rather, Therefore encourage one another with these words. How does this motivate us? How does this supposed to spur us on? Let me give you a few quick reasons, and I'm going to take it from here. You see, this is letter C in my second point. I'm going to move this to the top of the screen and give you rapid-fire motivating factors of why this is so incredibly motivating, okay? Let me just rapid-fire here. We've only got two points, so hang, hang tight. Okay, motivating because we will experience reunion with all Christians. There are some dead believers that I can't wait to meet. I want to meet J.C. Ryle. I, I want to meet R.C. Sproul. I mean, he's not too far dead, but he's gone. I can't meet him now. There's Christians. I want to meet Paul. Uh, of course, obviously, I always want to meet Jesus. But there's a reunion with all Christians from all ages. That's exciting. That's motivating. That means Christians aren't dead right now. Okay, pop quiz. Where are Christians right now? The correct answer would be heaven. 
However, where are their bodies right now? They're in the ground. So Christians right now are currently in a disembodied state. Okay? They don't have a body like we do right now. Their bodies are in the ground. So they're using some kind of temporary vessel, whatever that is. I don't know how it looks. I don't know how it works. I just know that right now they don't have their bodies because we can go visit the cemetery and see where their, their gravestones are and see where their bodies presumably still are. Christians, if you die right now, you'll be disembodied. I'll have a body in the future. CBC H H uh, HC is leading. You know, Evan and Pastor Hayden and uh, that whole team. There's some people there that we know and love, right? And you're never going to see them probably this side of heaven again unless they come back and visit. But we can be sure that when the rapture happens, we'll be reunited again forever. That's exciting. Second, we will gain Christ like we never have before. The greatest prize of our reunion with Jesus is Jesus. Heaven is heaven because of Jesus. If you don't love Jesus, you're probably not going to like him that much more in heaven. <laughs> love him now and understand that the greatest gift God can give us is himself. We get Jesus like we never have before. Sometimes, I don't know if you've ever experienced it when you're praying, and you're like, oh, this is so amazing. I love prayer. I love reading my Bible. I'm communing with Jesus, and it's awesome. You get that times a million because there will no longer be uh, things like death and dying, sin. But that's another great thing. If you're raptured right now, you get to skip the process of death. You don't have to go through the, the phases, especially as you're young. You don't have to go through the phases of losing your hair or having a bum leg or losing your hearing or your eyesight, your eyes getting cataracts. You can skip the entire process of death. That's awesome. That's motivating. That's encouraging. Even more. We'll have glorified bodies. Even though all of you guys are young, your bodies still have malfunctions, right? There's things about them that don't work quite right. Uh, there's things about your brain and things about your soul that just are deformed. In heaven, when we get our glorified bodies, we are fully formed, righteously formed, and perfectly formed. This means that we'll no longer have to deal with sin. No longer will you have sinful thoughts. No longer will you have sinful inclinations. God will renew your body and make it perfectly fit for heaven forever. One more motivating factor. We will be rewarded. And I made a note there, time's up. Which means the moment the rapture happens, if God lets you live through this, your time to, do, to be faithful in this life is now finished, and God will begin commencing issuing rewards for your faithfulness in this life. I'll let that encourage you to be more hardworking about the time that you do have, in the time that you have, to be faithful. There you go. The doctrine of the rapture. Exciting, motivating, and really mysterious. There's a lot of factors where are like, oh, I don't know how it's going to work out, but we're going to trust God to fulfill what he says. The New Testament hope of the Christian is that Jesus who died and rose again has promised to come back for his people, living and dead. Our hope is that we get to be reunited with Christ and that we'll be able to experience a whole new reality that we've never before seen and experienced. And this ought to motivate and encourage us. I read a story about something, actually, uh, as a kid. I don't know if you guys know about this. Um, there's the, the, there's this people called the prize patrol, and they would come to your house with these giant checks and be like, hey, you're a winner. You gave a million dollars. And I don't know how you actually enter these contests, but nevertheless, this is a big part of my childhood. I see the commercials all the time, and I kind of secretly hope that they would just show up at our doorstep and be like, you're a millionaire now, and things would be better. I look forward to that. Well, Lorenda Jackson and her mom, Annie Williams, were surprised by a letter that they got in the mail, which said, hey, you're a winner. And we're, we've enclosed a check for you in the amount of $6,000. Now, 
This $6,000 check is actually for you to send to the lawyers. You deposit it and you cash it out and take $5,000 of that check and send it to the attorneys to begin processing the legal work to get your money for this contest. Well, Lorenda and Annie were excited because they live pretty poor. And they, they immediately deposited the, check, deposited the check and immediately paid the lawyers. A few days later, the check bounced. Lorenda had overdrafted her account and now had fees that she had to pay on top of being out $5,000. She went on the news to report the fact that she had been scammed. This poor old lady had been hoodwinked. Her hope had been dashed. Her bank account had been emptied. All this because she put her hope in a check that was fake, on a letter that was fake. And really, if you carefully scrutinized it, be able to see it's pretty, pretty sketch. Nothing about it looked real. But that's only clear after the fact. In her excitement and in her hope, she was oblivious to all the signs that pointed to her being scammed. Young person, where is your hope? I would much rather you tonight come to the realization, look, I'm hoping in things that are ultimately going to scam me. I'm giving money away. I'm, I'm, I'm spending time and energy on things that are going to under, undercut the very thing I want out of life. I want to be happy. I want to be healthy. I want to be in right relationship with my God. You may not know that that's one of your greatest needs, but that is. Everything that is against God is against that very purpose. Where's your hope? Make sure tonight that you reconcile with God and that you put your hope not in the things of this world, but in the things of the next world. You want to be free from depression, anxiety, and I mean, not free in the sense of you're going to be fully rid of it in this life, but your hope will be stationed in a place where thieves can't break in and steal and rust can't destroy. The impenetrable and perfect hope of the Christian is something that can't be touched in this life. And that hope is King Jesus coming back for us and taking us home with him. I pray that in your small groups you're able to wrap your head around this and have some really profitable conversations as you put your hope in where it really belongs. Let's pray. Mm -hmm.